Well, we are finally here at, uh, at the third stage of this particular series. We've run a couple of different series at lunchtime over the last four weeks. And uh, one of the great things about today's topic is it, in a way, uh, sometimes brings all of that knowledge together uh, for us to contemplate. Uh, how many of us have actually read the book of Ezekiel? Okay, good. Who's never really read the book of Ezekiel? Even better. Um, okay. Bearing in mind, as I'm often saying, bearing in mind that listening to a talk like this, as informative and entertaining as it is, uh, never substitutes for reading the text. And so really what I'm trying to do is just A, highlight the importance of the text, and B, hopefully uh, tease people into opening it up to see it for themselves. Nothing would delight me more than to receive uh, a letter from someone in a month's time to say, I read the book of Ezekiel, and it's nothing like what you said. <laughs> that would mean that ultimately people are reading the sources for themselves. Um, I'm going to come back to that point maybe at the end, uh, because if I say it now, it's going to uh, alienate half the audience. Um, and I'm, I've got a, uh, a certain point that I'm going to uh, make at the end. So please remind me on the subject of, of reading the sources. Okay. Let's just go very, very briefly back to the timeline that we've had on the board for this series. And remember that I said that really all we're talking about is we're touching on the three big daddy prophets of the Bible in that entire revolution, which we call the Nebuic Revolution, the prophetic transformation that was affected amongst the Jewish people uh, between roundabout minus 750 and minus 550. And as I'm often pointing out, as I'm often pointing out, and you will have heard me say this before, but it's always worth remembering when we look at this time span, which this time span ends about 2,500 years, that's two and a half thousand years ago. So when you read the book of Ezekiel, you're actually reading a book that is two and a half thousand years old. So when it speaks to you, and it does, it speaks to you, and there's a text coming from the ancient world and even before what historians call the ancient world, it's coming to you direct. But it's always worth bearing in mind that, of course, just following the prophetic revolution in Israel, and Ezekiel is actually one of the last prophets of that uh, project, following that is when we find the world goes through some sort of spiritual transformation. We, if, I mean... <laughs> If we look to the West, we've got the entire golden age of Greek philosophy that's about to unfold. If you look to the East, we've got Zoroastra. If we go further East, we've got the Buddha. If we go further East, we have Confucius, uh, Zoroastra. Our thought revolution really happens prior to that. What's useful about today's talk is that having sat through Isaiah and Jeremiah, and particularly last week's extensive discussion of the historical background to Jeremiah, which I feel is absolutely necessary for even being able to open the book and understand what's going on in Jeremiah. But that historical exercise sets us up today, so we only have to spend a couple of minutes reminding ourselves of what has happened, and then we can launch straight into Ezekiel, and we can look much more at the theme 
of Ezekiel rather than just the history. But let's remind ourselves, remember that we are uh, in around 720. 720 is the massive destruction of the northern kingdom, the expansive Neo-Assyrian empire that comes and wipes out the northern kingdom and vanquishes the ten tribes. If people are, I just want to say that if people are looking at computers and iPads and things while I'm talking, I know that it's really harsh. I just find that unbelievably distracting. What happens is that people next to them are also looking at their, rather than actually listening to it. This is being recorded, so anyone who needs to do that can do that. And I apologise for having to say that to anyone. Please don't take offence. It's just, um, you know. Here is the destruction of the northern kingdom and the vanquishment of the ten tribes. They are gone. Here is the big deal with Hezekiah. Remember, we looked at Hezekiah, and who's the big daddy prophet that's around, and a group of prophets clustered around that king, and that king, of course, is Hezekiah, and that is sitting here, the great salvation that happened in relation to the kingdom of Judah. There would be no Jewish people if not for that miraculous salvation. And once again, I emphasize that when I talk about the words miraculous salvation, you don't have to say, oh, he's talking about God, he's talking about religion, he's talking about miracles, I can't handle that. I just want to know what's in the text. Whichever way you cut it, whichever way you look at it, you can have all sorts of explanations for that. The bottom line is, is the outcome is that in the massive sea of expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, this small kingdom called Judah was delivered and saved when everybody else around them was wiped out. And then we had a series of very, very unpleasant kings, and so that's why when we get to a year like here, uh, we know that in 597, Already the Assyrian Empire has been destroyed here by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come after several of our uh, <coughs> more ambitious and not particularly smart kings rebel. And ultimately, if you recall, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah is really living through this entire period. The prophet Yirmiyahu is living through this entire period. He sees the destruction of Assyria. He sees the whole reform. Remember the reform of the righteous king, Josiah, that we looked at here. But following Josiah, that reform fell apart. We see the reign of Jehoiakim. And at the end of Jehoiakim's reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Nebuchadnezzar, the great leader, of the great emperor of Babylon, who's not going to tolerate any nonsense, comes and he exiles, I mean, Jehoiakim dies, and he exiles Yehoniah. Yehoniah was only on the throne for three months, and he was exiled. That particular exile, which involved Nebuchadnezzar going into Jerusalem, he did not destroy the temple. He plundered it, as you would, as you would. He plundered it, and he exiled the king and several thousand people with him into Babylon. When I say several thousand people, he took the cream of the society, the teachers, the scholars, the administrators, anyone who had half a brain, he took them into captivity. 
but in captivity, the exiled community in Babylon more or less had it okay. The king himself was kept in prison, but he wasn't overly mistreated. Ten years later, Nebuchadnezzar had to go back to Jerusalem to quell the rebellion of the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, Zedekiah, and it is there, ten years later in 586, that the temple is destroyed. Temple destroyed here. It is interesting that... Hello, Hal. It is interesting that the book of Jeremiah, which we looked at extensively last week, is really totally parallel, in a way, to the book of Ezekiel. That's the first thing we can understand just for context, except that Jeremiah is sitting in Jerusalem watching these things unfold, watching the great stupidities, watching the great disasters, watching the bad decisions, watching the Babylonians come once and then again, in fact, a little-known fact that Nebuchadnezzar actually came three times because he actually came earlier in 603. But watching all this happen, and eventually the great destruction, whereas Ezekiel is written already in exile. Ezekiel is exiled with Yehoniah, with the king Yehoiachin, he's called Yehoniah, Yehoiachin, in 597. He is a young priest. We understand that he was probably in around his early to mid-twenties at this stage. He came from a priestly family. He had done priestly service in the temple. He was a, obviously a very talented individual. Uh, we don't know what his career would have unfolded as had he stayed in Jerusalem, had events gone differently. But he was amongst those who were exiled with Yehoiachin. And I say that because perhaps... Perhaps one way of really backgrounding the tremendous impact of the book of Ezekiel is to understand that for Ezekiel as a person, if we really try to understand, uh, and remember that uh, you, you mentioned uh, Susan Heschel, it was actually her father who famously said that a prophet is a man, not a microphone, right? And then in fact, they are personalities and if we really look at Ezekiel, we may gain the impression that for Ezekiel and others like him, other young men of his generation, that actually found themselves in exile in Babylon. It was, and I say this by the way, was just as a, a way of looking at the text, certainly in its opening, it, it was all a bit of an adventure. It wasn't actually necessarily that bad. The captivity wasn't that bad. It was shocking. It was shocking. The king of Judah has been exiled. But remember, at that stage, that's as bad as they thought that it would get. The great prophecies of the Torah that Josiah had uncovered about the king being exiled, that's as bad as it's going to get. In fact, as we know from the book of Jeremiah, as we know... There were, in fact, at least two major political camps, one of which was saying that this exile of Yehoniah in 597 is temporary. He's coming back, and in a couple of years, everything is going to be restored. Not just the king coming back, but the vessels that were taken from the temple. Everything's going to be absolutely dandy. 
and the Babylonians are going to be whatever's going to happen to them, but it will all be fine. And if you remember, it was Yeremiah who stood there with a yoke around his neck and he stood there and he told these false prophets, God has not spoken to you because it ain't going to be fine. But in exile, amongst the cream of Judean society, it wasn't too bad. And so people were lulled into a sense of security. I'll just wait till you take a seat because otherwise I'll, I'll be distracted. Don't worry, you don't have to sit there completely rigidly. It's just that there's certain energies that I know that if I launch to a certain point, we're going to miss it when human beings come in and out of a room. So Ezekiel is in the exile, and one of the amazing things about the book of Ezekiel is unlike, you know, when we look at the book of Jeremiah, which I, well, I didn't really tell you this because I didn't want to scare anybody off about Jeremiah, but <laughs> many, many scholars have many, many different opinions, and I myself have sat down and done this work for myself, uh, going through and identifying exactly which chapters of Jeremiah are relating to which king and exactly which episode is happening in the background and what is he reacting to. But the book of Ezekiel is like an open, it's like, it's like looking at all laid out nicely on your iPad. It's very, very clear because he dates things exactly. And that's why the book begins in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth year of the exile, the fifth year of the exile of King Yehoniah. So we know that that opens in 592. Now, <laughs> the amazing thing about the book of Ezekiel is that even your biggest chazapressing apikorsim have to acknowledge that the book of Ezekiel is not much later than when it is set. We have certain things that will emerge in the book of Ezekiel, you will see, that could really not have been written after the return from the exile. They must have been written before. He is keenly aware of the historical circumstances that are happening around him, and they are reflected in all secular historical accounts that we have of also what is going on in Judah, in Babylon, and in the Middle East generally. He's there. And he dates it if minus, he doesn't say minus 592, of course, but he says the fifth year of the exile of Yechoniah. What therefore does he mean? I'll just see if people are awake. What therefore does he mean when he actually starts off by saying in the 30th year? The book starts in the 30th year, then it says in the fifth year of the, of the exile of Yechoniah. So what does he mean by the 30th year? Is 30th year? Well, that's outstanding because a number of scholars believe that that means he's 30, right? And that would make sense if he was in his mid-20s, in his 30th year. But we also understand this. <coughs> There's a couple of fascinating things to emerge from that. I just want to touch upon for a second. Is that if we go back 30 years from that date, we end up at minus 622, 623 also generally regarded about around the year that Ezekiel was born. But what else has happened in 622, 623? If you recall from last week, minus 622, minus 623 is the year which represented the height of the Josianic revolution and reform in which they found the scroll of the Torah. 
That changed everything. So a number of scholars believe that in fact there was a whole, there was a recognition of a whole new phase of the Jewish people with the Torah as its central document. That was the project of Josiah, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. And so a whole counting system started from there. But there is another possibility as well, and I know I'm going to perhaps in more detail, but it is really interesting, is that minus 622 was also a Jubilee year. So in a sense, he's in the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle. The Jubilee cycle, of course, is 50 years long. That's a very important and often unspoken about cycle in Jewish history. For example, if I was to ask a learned audience like this, when was the last Jubilee year? When was the last Yobel? Who could tell me? What year, what year of the Yobel are we in now? When was the last Yobel? Well, I'll take it. <laughs> 623. No. no. We've had a few since then. The last your minus 623. The last your bell was in fact 1980-81. So we are more or less now in the 30th, 34th year of the of the your bell cycle. But it's a separate issue. Ezekiel is standing in exile in Babylon. He's standing on the banks of the river Kabar. We don't know, really. People say, oh, the river Kabar, I know what that is. Tribute of the Euphrates, you know. No, we don't really know. There are, once again, opinions about this. It could be that the river Kabar is actually more in uh, eastern Syria. Uh, but it's a tribute of the Euphrates. And you know that the Jewish community then as now and always, if you find yourself in Iraq, if you find yourself in Babylon, there's really only one place you're going to be living. Um, you know, Jews like to live in nice areas, and there's only really one place you're going to be, and that's where everybody is, and that, of course, is in the whole pale of settlement that exists between the Tigris and the Euphrates, and those two great rivers which is obviously the meaning of the term Mesopotamia, which is the origin. That's where civilization grew up between these rivers, the fertile crescent there. Jews are living in dotted communities, and Ezekiel's standing there on the banks of the river Kabar with some mates just being Ezekiel. When suddenly, you see, it's not simple. It's not simple. The book, the book of Ezekiel was right up until, remember, remember who sat through the series that we did on the Talmudic period? Yeah? So you are aware that the Tanaim, the guys who developed the Mishnah, are doing all sorts of interesting things with Judaism. And one of the things they're doing is actually creating the canon of texts that we know to be the Bible. And no book in all of their discussions, which weren't really finalized till the second century, and they had a plethora of texts before them, and you know that, because if you look at some Christian Bibles, there's like 10 or 15 more texts that you've never heard of in the Bible, and so why are they not in our Bible? And then we've got texts that they don't have, is because in this plethora of texts, the rabbis of the Mishnah are deciding what is the Bible, and no book was more controversial than Ezekiel. And it was controversial primarily for three reasons. The first is what I'm about to talk about. There is a very, very explicit description of God. 
That first chapter of Ezekiel, I'll talk about it in a sec, but we'll talk about it unfortunately too briefly, but that becomes a primary text of all streams of Jewish mysticism following. They all have to account for this vision of the chariot. The second reason it was controversial, the book of Ezekiel, is because, as we'll see, and as you'll see when you read it, there are some very, very harsh things said about the Jewish people. But let's go back to chapter 1. It's 592. He's standing on the banks of the river, and suddenly he sees some sort of cloud thing happen there in the horizon. And then it gets bigger and there's a big wind and suddenly rushing towards him he realizes is the divine chariot and whereas we have a picture of the divine chariot as I discussed a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah Isaiah's chariot is really static compared to Ezekiel's Ezekiel's chariot is moving and its parts are moving and it is dynamic Many, many people, Ezekiel's got a fascinating reception history, obviously, and there are many, many people in later times, particularly close to our own age, who would write entire books trying to tell us that what Ezekiel saw was some sort of alien UFO concept. It's almost like a machine. It's got moving parts, circles within circles, and things going up and down, of course, angels, and... It's very, very... Now, the rabbis actually, and all scholars since, I mean, it was particularly spiritually aware people, were very, very worried about that first chapter of Ezekiel because it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Many people have pulled over it and tried to understand it and come to bizarre conclusions. It looks highly anthropomorphic. It is clearly metaphoric, but it's dangerous. The Talmud actually tells us about the young child that was studying the text of Ezekiel 1, which was regarded as the axiomatic mystical text. That is Ma'asem Merkava. That is the work of the chariot. And the young child was studying it and suddenly had an apprehension of one word. That word, by the way, is an amazing word. You know, when Eliezer ben Yehuda, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, was reviving Hebrew, he was looking for a word for electricity. And there is a word in that first book, of the uh, first chapter of Ezekiel, that describes a type of energy that the book of Ezekiel calls chashmal. And no one ever knew what chashmal was until Eliezer ben Yehuda said, oh, I'm going to use that word for electricity. That's brilliant. <laughs> this child was looking at the thing and had a sudden apprehension, says the Talmud, of the meaning of the word chashmal. Sometimes you'll see it actually translated in classic English editions as electrum. But it was, he suddenly understood it, and the word itself literally came out of the page and zapped him and electrocuted him when he died. <laughs> Rabbis tell you that that is a very, very dangerous text. Now, what they're really saying is that when you read it, you've got to read it as some form of poetry. We cannot really imagine that God comes along in a chariot, but that's what Ezekiel saw. What is hugely pivotal about this, what is hugely pivotal, is that for the first time in the entire biblical tradition, God appears to a prophet 
in exile. <coughs> Remember that when these guys were exiled to Babylon in 597, they had no idea what they were supposed to do. <coughs> they had no idea. We are in exile. We don't even know if God can hear us here. We know that God is God of the Holy... What are we supposed No one had invented shuls. There were no Jewish community centers. I mean, what are we supposed to do? We don't have a temple because we're here in exile. What are we... We don't even know what commandments we're supposed to... We have no clue. And gradually they work it out, but in 592, this massive vision, and whereas we discussed the issues that Isaiah and Jeremiah were having with being selected as prophets, you know, ah, should I do it, should I not? Isaiah goes, pick me, Jeremiah goes, I don't want it. Uh, Ezekiel doesn't have such luxury because in the face of that vision, he just falls completely flat on his face. And when he picks himself up, he's told by God, I'm gonna appoint you as a prophet. This is already in chapter 2. I'm going to point you as a prophet. But you're a unique type of prophet. You're not just a Nabi. I'm going to appoint you as a Sofet. What is it, Sofet? Anyone know the meaning of the word Sofet? Observe. 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 Or look out. You are like the guy who is sitting in the watchtower on the wall. Now, you have to tell people how it is. If you don't, then the blood of everybody will be on your hands. But if you do, then each person can make up their own mind, but you'll be absolved because you'll have done what you're supposed to do. That's the job of a lookout. A lookout is the one who tells people inside a city, the evil is coming, I've told you. And... <laughs> There are many, many, many things in the next few chapters that Ezekiel has to do. Ezekiel is effectively, for the first few years, he's a performance artist. He is told by God to do little performances. He says, people won't listen to you. They'll think you're an idiot. But never the, 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 Ezekiel was never mistreated, but people were just treating him like a loon. I mean, you're going to sit there, you're going to build a little clay model of Jerusalem, you're going to lie on its side on one side for 390 days and on the other side of it for 40 days, and you're going to exemplify this, and you have to walk around like this. God even tells Ezekiel certain metaphoric messages through these performance pieces that he has to make what can only be described as a, uh, well, it's a barbecue of sorts, and uh, he's told to cook some food uh, directly over uh, human excrement and to eat it. Uh, that is the point at which Ezekiel actually says to God, there are certain things I'm going to do and certain things I'm not going to do, and I'm not going to do that. I'm a priest, I've only ever really eaten nice things, I'll have to keep myself holy, I'm not going to do a poo barbecue. And God turns around and says to him, you know what? Okay, I understand. So you can use animal dung. <laughs> Ezekiel goes with his performance pieces, and then, and then, chapter 8. The famous chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 of Ezekiel, which is really, I mean, there are so many things in Ezekiel, and we have so little time, but it would be remiss if I did not highlight uh, this for people that are unfamiliar with the book because that is where it's, I mean, it, even, even if it was outside of prophetic text it would be amazing science fiction it's incredible Ezekiel is taken in some sort of astral trip 
Now, obviously, there's discussions. Was he taken there physically? Was he taken there mentally? <coughs> He's taken, a uh, wind comes along and lifts him up by the tzitzit, or which we maybe understand by tzitzit or by his payas, I don't know how, but he's, he's transported at supersonic speeds and suddenly from Babylon and suddenly finds himself in Jerusalem. And God says to him, I'm taking you towards the inner sanctum of the temple. I want you to look through a crack in the wall and I want you to tell me what you see there. This is after having passed by the front of the temple where there is some symbol of abomination going on there. Remember that the latter kings of Judah, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, had propagated and, in, and tolerated a type of polytheistic, syncretic religion that was associated with the vile social injustice and corruption that was happening. Fathers burning their children in return for an afternoon of sexual delight with the temple prostitutes. Some of the most horrendous and vile practices were going on there. God says, look through the crack in the wall. And inside the inner sanctum of the temple, he sees the 70 elders of Israel offering sacrifices and votive offerings to all sorts of abominations and idols that were around them because they thought that God could not see them. Then he takes him by another side of the temple and where Ezekiel sees to, you know, a group of women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And Tammuz, one of the great gods of the ancient world in the Middle East, a vegetation god. Remember that Tammuz in Babylon was a month in the middle of summer in Babylon and in Israel and the northern, in the Middle East, as huge hot winds coming from the desert and they burn all the vegetation which represents the death of Tammuz, and these women are sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And then he takes them round to the other side of the temple, where he sees a group of men, about 25 men, bowing down with their backs to the temple and bowing down to the rising sun. They are, in fact, worshipping the god Shamash. It's amazing if you think about it, because these are two completely contrary nature religions. One weeping the sun and one praising the sun. Either way, they are all idolatrous nature religions which lead to the pursuit of power. Whereas, in fact, the entire prophetic theme of Israel to emerge from the prophets, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is a theory and a spiritual path of powerlessness in order to understand what our role in the world is. Then, in this vision, the glory of God that fills the temple departs. It's the same chariot, and it's departing the temple. And by stages, it leaves the inner, then it leaves the court, and it leaves here, and it leaves Jerusalem, and it ends up on the hills. But as it leaves Jerusalem, an angel in the chariot reaches down beneath the chariot and grabs burning coals and throws it on Jerusalem and the whole thing goes up in flames. This is the vision of Ezekiel, chapters 8, between around 8 and 10, that is just stunning when you see it. God has left the building. <laughs> Ezekiel is told to take uh, vessels of, of, of exile, clay gola, and wander around with them. More performance pieces, but really he's already been informed, I think around chapter 12, he's already been informed of the impending exile 
of Zedekiah. People do not believe him because they're still entrenched in this idea that there's going to be this restoration very soon, and yet Ezekiel is now telling them that King Zedekiah is going to be exiled. Remember that when King Zedekiah was exiled, when Nebuchadnezzar came back in 588, and indeed, in, uh, I mean, there are, and, 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 then, and then Ezekiel, uh, really, up until around uh, chapter 19, 20, Ezekiel is really uh, giving a series of prophecies that look at the reasons why this is happening. You would be familiar with some of chapter 16 because we read it in the Haggadah, this incredible metaphor of a little baby abandoned girl left on a hillside that God comes across and takes this baby still covered in, 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 in fetal blood, but it's alive. And God takes it and washes it and nurtures it and looks after it and raises this child. And when it's old enough, enters with this young woman into a solemn covenant of marriage. But this girl has become a complete, completely indiscriminate profligate nymphomaniac who is basically seeking relations with everyone. But in, and I'm going through the chapters fairly quickly because I want to really hit the main themes uh, because it's impossible to understand Ezekiel until we look at chapter 18. Uh, and in chapter 18, and this is more thematic, this is still part of Ezekiel's work to try and give over these messages. In chapter 18, and which also relates to chapter 36, but that's a separate part of the book, but there's a deep interconnectedness between 18 and 36. Always remember that the chapters are not integral to the text. The chapters came much, 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 much later, and they're not even really a Jewish project. Those of you who are familiar with the fact that a medieval monk called Stephen Langton in about the 13th century actually put the chapters in, and it's really, we have adopted that from Christianity because we had to, because when they were arguing with us over the Bible, we had to know what parts of the Bible they were referring to, and then after a while we realized that actually those chapters aren't a bad idea. Uh, that's why Jewish even religious, traditional Jewish texts today will show you the chapters, but they aren't original to the text. But in chapter 18, Ezekiel starts talking, as Isaiah was talking, as Jeremiah was talking, about one of the great contributions that the prophets are making to Jewish spirituality, which is still with us today and has been ever since, and <laughs> is at the absolute heart of the entire prophetic cry. And that is the concept of Teshuvah, the concept of return, return to a simpler, more authentic mode of existence. Teshuvah doesn't just mean return, and it certainly doesn't just mean repentance. It refers to that sudden inner realization and transformation of the self about the sorts of people we are. That is Teshuvah, and it is the beginning of an answer. It is really one individual answer to the call of the creator of the universe, saying, I made this universe for you. What are you doing in it to express me? And Ezekiel shows us 
that Teshuvah is about now. Now. If you were righteous your entire life, but you spent the last five minutes sitting, that's who you are. If you sinned all your life, but spent the last five minutes being righteous, that's who you are. It is what are you doing now is the big message of Teshuvah. I can't speak strongly enough about chapter 18. <laughs> I mean, Do I really want wicked people to die? I want people. I want people to return. I want them to live. I created humanity to live, not to schmeiß them out. I want people to be better. This is a big call, and we haven't really got time to do justice to it. In 1920, 21, 22, Ezekiel is going over the whole history of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing, it's all going downhill. Whoa. Whereas Ezekiel's going, you know what? You could still avoid it if you just did Teshuvah, if you just said, who are we in the world? What are we doing with ourselves? Can we be better people? Can we live in a way that would justify the existence of this world and justify the continued existence of the Jewish people? <laughs> and then, in chapter 23, as I said, it relates to chapter 16, the famous parable of the two sisters. Ahola and Aholiva representing the northern and the southern kingdoms and how these two girls went on to become these massive, massive prostitutes. They weren't just, and Ezekiel says to them, you know, and, 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 and you can see why the rabbis had a problem with it because, you know, it is. You know, you literally said, you opened your legs to everyone that was passing by. And he goes, and even more, whereas, and I, I have to explain this because there might be some people in the room that don't actually understand how prostitution works. Uh, what, what, what normally happens is that if someone goes to a prostitute and pays them for sexual services, whereas Ezekiel says to Israel, you actually paid your clients. That's how... That's how eager you were to propagate yourself amongst all of the different ideas and ideologies and religions. And all I ever asked you to do was live simply and with justice. That's all I asked, says God. But you have to take on this idea and seek that power and do this and play this game with that nation. And then in chapter 24, chapter 24 is a difficult, difficult chapter. Because in chapter 24, which is also dated, by now we're in minus 588. And in chapter 24, Ezekiel learns through divine prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar has arrived at the city and has set Jerusalem under siege. God tells Ezekiel this during the night. And he tells him that what's going to happen is that destruction is coming. Nebuchadnezzar, remember they're in Babylon, they're 500 miles away, there's no emails. <laughs> Ezekiel hears this through God, and God says, 
Nebuchadnezzar is at the gates besieging Jerusalem and in the morning your wife will be dead and when she dies and she'll be dead in the morning you will not display any signs of mourning for her you will this is tough you will go about your business as normal you will not show the usual signs of a mourner you will put on tefillin you will go about your business you will act as though that never happened and when people say to you how can you be so numb to your wife's death you will say to them as numb as I appear to her is how numb you will be when you hear of the destruction of Jerusalem. And they said, ah, you're just an idiot. Chapters 25 to chapters 32 are a bit of an interlude in the book because Ezekiel's going in to prophesy about a whole range of other nations, particularly Ammon and Tyre and Egypt even telling them a little bit about what's going to happen. So if we look at here, 1 to 24 really is a set in itself with subdivisions, but it leads up to prior to the destruction. This is why uh, so many people realize that Ezekiel is a very, very systemic work. It's pretty much as it was written, we have it. Uh, 25 to 32 deal, as I said, with other nations because... Uh, that's what is concerning Ezekiel while the siege and destruction is going on. He's actually, God won't even let him have access to that. And from chapter 33 uh, to 48, which we're going to look at in the next couple of minutes, um, in chapter 33, you, you remember the famous story of the Battle of Marathon, um, uh, <coughs> between the Persians and the Greeks, when that guy runs from Marathon, the original Marathon, to a collapse and tell them that the Greeks have won. A refugee arrives from Jerusalem. This is clearly now we're in around 586. A refugee, exhausted, having run the whole way, one single person arrives in Babylon and only has, before he collapses, only have has enough strength to say two words. Puktahir. The city has been split. And then people realize that everything that Ezekiel has been saying is true. And after you get to chapter 33, the whole of the rest of the book of Ezekiel is a prophet who people are now looking at as the mouthpiece of God. Everything that he has said. Zedekiah was exiled. The Jerusalem was captured. Jerusalem was destroyed by fire. The temple itself the great inviolable building dedicated as an eternal building by King Solomon nearly 500 years earlier is burnt to the ground. And all of the calamities that ensue. Now the task of Ezekiel, this is why it's an astonishing book if you think that it was amazing till now, now it's like Ezekiel on crack. Because now Ezekiel has the task of restoring this nation. Because he realizes, and we realize that what Ezekiel is saying is that it is precisely the exilic community in Babylon that is going to be the ones that will eventually restore Israel. They are the ones that are going to return. They know because they've got a letter from the prophet Jeremiah that they have to settle roots there 
and look after themselves, pray for the welfare of Babylon, pray for the welfare of the country they're in, all of the exilic behaviour that is familiar to us living in a diaspora, but they know that this exile is 70 years and that they are going to return, says Jeremiah, but Ezekiel is telling them about how they are to rebuild themselves spiritually, and before he does that, he has a message in chapter 34 for one very, very particular segment of the population of the exile, of the Jewish people. One very particular segment that Ezekiel dresses in chapter 34 in the most unrestrained terms. And that is the leadership of the Jewish people. He launches at them with vehemence at the shepherds of Israel who were given the task of guiding this nation and instead fed off them and exploited them and squeezed them and drank their blood. Anybody who wants to get a very, very startling perception about leadership and what leaders, where leadership can take the Jewish people in wrong directions should read chapter 34 of the book of Ezekiel. <coughs> and chapter 36 is just... Our entire... This is, <laughs> I haven't even got there. Those are the things. When's he going to get to that? I haven't even got that. Because that is in chapter 37. But chapter 36, once again, this... I'll tell you what exile is says Ezekiel, let's, 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 let's talk about, let's talk tachos, says Ezekiel to the Jewish people, I'll tell you what exile is. Exile is a chilul Hashem. Exile is a desecration of the divine name. The very fact that you, the Jewish people, are in exile desecrates the divine name in the world because ultimately the Jewish people are the ones who are to bring humanity to an understanding of God. And if you are not in your place and if you are not what you're doing, why do you need to be the Jewish people? Not a culture club. <laughs> and even if you do not deserve it, says God through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. I will have to redeem you, says God, for the sake of my name. Amazing. In fact, there's three words in chapter 36 that sum up the whole book of Ezekiel. In my becoming sanctified through you to their eyes. And I don't need to tell you that the acronym, the Rashetiv of the acronym of those three words is Babel, is Babylon. It is precisely in exile that the Jewish people can actually achieve their greatest heights. But only if they act in a way which sanctifies the name of God. And then, <laughs> chapter 37, which is... I don't need to tell you what happens there. As you know, many scholars have discussed did this happen, did it not happen, is it a metaphor, is it an allegory? Put up your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the great vision of Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones, where he prophesies and sees bones come together and rise up the conjoining of the house of Joseph and the house of Yehuda, 
the restoration of the ten tribes. But even though many, many generations have interpreted that famous chapter 37 in various ways, in some ways, it's really only our generation that gets it. Because we have seen images of valleys full of bones. We have seen people get up from graves and pick themselves up and go to the land of Israel and restore the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Our generation has an amazing connection with chapter 37. And then, once the people are settled on the land, and don't even think I've even begun to do justice to chapter 37 if you haven't read it, then in chapter 38 and 39, once the people are settled in the land, then comes the big Armageddon, the day of Gog and Magog. All the nations of, and we realize now that Ezekiel is no longer talking about the restoration of the temple that's going to happen in the late 6th century BCE. Ezekiel tells you now I'm talking about Chavum, where in the future, and all the nations of the world will come and gather against Israel. There's no other purpose than to plunder and massacre. And they will all gather around. Discussion is it Gog, is it Magog, who's Gog, who's Magog, is it Gog, of Magog, until the generation that this happens to, they won't know. And it's pretty scary. And they all come against the restored Israel in the land. And when they're all ready to strike, along comes God and slaughterates them. Slaughterate them. <laughs> they die in their millions. It takes seven years just to clean up the bodies. Chapter 38 and 39, it's scary stuff, but it's apocalyptic, you know, wackos get very excited. Go, my God, it's right around the corner. They shouldn't get too excited. It's not something you necessarily want to see. And then in chapters 40 to 48, 40 to 48 is a description by Ezekiel fully contained description of the temple as it is going to be built. Now this is one of the reasons why we have a very strong idea that Ezekiel is written before the return to Zion in the 6th century, is because the temple they ended up building looks nothing like Ezekiel's description. Ezekiel's temple is much bigger, and there's all sorts of interesting areas around it. It's fascinating. One of the really interesting things about Ezekiel's temple I mean, who is, uh, I'm assuming that quite a number of us have been to Jerusalem, yeah? Been to Israel, and even if we haven't, we, we know the geography. One of the interesting things about Ezekiel's temple is that two streams of water emerge from either side of the Temple Mount, which become rivers, and one goes all the way to the Mediterranean, and the other goes all the way to the Dead Sea. And those of you who are familiar, some of you are familiar with Shimon Peres' famous plan, you know, from the, from the Med to the Dead to the Red. There's a whole canal system they want to do that. That's what Ezekiel's uh, prophetic vision looks like of the temple. It's a symbol of peace for all humanity, of course. The land of Israel, with the restored ten tribes, we've got that full 12 tribes. The land of Israel, instead of the tribes being randomly allocated as they are in the Bible, Ezekiel's got a whole picture of that where all of the tribes, it's like stripes, they've all, every tribe's got a bit of coast, every tribe's got a bit of inland, every tribe's got a part of the Jordan Valley, a lot of little structure going on in those eight chapters. <coughs> and at the end, at the end, 
Ezekiel and the last words of the book of Ezekiel are also, in a sense, expressing the essential theme of the whole book, because he says Jerusalem's name will be changed. It will no longer be called Jerusalem. The city will be called Hashem Shama. God is there. God is there. Jerusalem is a city that exists to contain the divine presence because it is the center of justice and righteousness in the world. And that is how God is expressed in the world. And that takes us back, you know, to chapter 8 and 9 and 10 when Ezekiel sees the Shrina, sees the divine presence departing the temple, but by the end of the book, in the fully restored Jerusalem. Is there an issue? Is this, have I said something? Is yeah. We're talking about there versus here. You. There versus here. God is there versus God is here. And what did I say? God is there. Yeah. God is there. God is there. Very, very interesting. That is interesting. It's still the exilic perspective. God is there. Ezekiel in chapters, and I can't emphasize enough, despite all the exciting themes, the importance of chapters 18 and 36, and the idea of Teshuvah, Ezekiel really works out from what happens to the nation what is happening to the individual. The idea that we are individually responsible for our spiritual journey and our understanding and our relationship with God. I actually was quite controversial this morning. I get to talk to the high school of TBT. And I told them that if they're not actually taking responsibility but learning Hebrew and understanding that, then they're basically wasting their time and their parents' resources. <laughs> they well leave the school. Because unless we take responsibility, this is a lesson we take right through adulthood. We are responsible. You cannot get your Jewish education from rabbis and teachers and idiots like me. You have to open the text. You have to read it, and you have to create that understanding for yourself because what it's asking you to do, what the great prophets of Israel are asking us to do, is to change ourselves and live a life in connection with who we are and realizing our full potential, and we have to take responsibility for that individually and by ourselves in whichever circumstances and challenges we find ourselves. And that's really the big idea behind the book of Ezekiel. The individual is the nation. The nation is the individual. And I'm hoping that many of us will go back and look again at the book of Ezekiel with its massively powerful themes, remembering that I have not even skated across the surface of it, but uh, it will hopefully this, uh, take, uh, this talk will give you an idea of the basic outline and structure of the book. Thank you.